back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the artisans and master craftsmen, the cinematographers, the sound mixers, sound editors, the writers, directors, actors, producers. Uh, we've even had a couple financiers on talking about their cons- over the past seven years, talking about their considerations. Costumers, production designers, you name it, and of course, composers, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, we're doing a lot of talking again this week. Uh, very, very excited that we have returning live guests at the midpoint of the show at the half hour mark, Andre Phillips and Charles Vuolo are back with us to talk about their first feature, Lupe, which they were on the show almost two years ago exactly, on March 11th, 2019. Uh, Andre and Chuck were on the show talking about Lupe. Um, It was screening at CineQuest Film Festival. Now, this past Friday, February 26th, the film got a distribution deal and started streaming on HBO Max. So I cannot wait to talk to Andre and Charles. Phil, all of you who aren't our regular listeners, and even if you are, you may not remember all the details of the film from two years ago, but talk to them and have them fill us in on the film. The wonderful production elements, most notably T. Acton Fitzgerald, their cinematographer, uh, and incredible performances from Raphael Albaran as Celia Harrison. Um, but and, and of course, pick up where we left them on the festival circuit and find out what their journey to distribution was like uh, once they finished the festivals. So I'm really looking forward and so happy to have Andre and Chuck back on the show. Uh, but we've got two fabulous pre-recorded exclusive interviews for you today. So I'm telling you right now, we are running 90 minutes today. Um, first, you're going to hear from my exclusive with writer-director Nicholas Jarecki talking about his sophomore film, Crisis. Uh, many of you may remember uh, Nicholas did the incredible, incredible Richard Gere film, Arbitrage. And I know my colleague and friend Courtney Howard will long remember as we sat in the screening room uh, next to each other watching Arbitrage, and we both gasp at the same time with this incredible Swarovski crystal, floor-to-ceiling, waterfall chandelier in Arbitrage. I will always remember Nicholas for that. But now Nicholas is back with a film called Crisis about not just the opioid crisis, but the opioid business and the different prongs of what that means, what that entails. And he focuses in on um, drug tr- uh, multi-cartel uh, that is smuggling fentanyl. And interestingly, he takes the tactic of not, everybody thinks of drugs coming up through the southern border with Mexico. Um, no. This is set with drugs coming from the north because it's wide open. There is no wall there. There's not even a part of a wall. There's no discussion of a wall. And there's plenty of open country to cross borders. 
And the film is structured so that there is uh, an architect, a mother, a recovering addict from an oxycodone addiction, um, and her son disappears. Then we have a university professor who does drug testing for a pharmaceutical company. And he does the testing and gives it a stamp of approval before it gets uh, passed off to the FDA. He sees issues in a drug being developed by the pharmaceutical company. Does he give in to their demands and rubber stamp a report without revealing the true findings? Or does he put his career on the line? And then, of course, we've got undercover DEA working, trying to bring down the traffickers um, that are sending all of the drugs into the United States. It is a very well-crafted film. It is a potboiler to the nth degree. And to get these different vantage points, it's very akin, the structure is very akin to what we've seen in traffic, in crash, and in both versions of the movie Vantage Point until everything converges. Um, so you're getting all these different perspectives. And uh, Nicholas does an amazing job. But after Nicholas, after Andre and Chuck, then you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Louise Linton. Louise is, she's been acting for a while. She's had a production company, but now she steps into the arena as a writer-director with Me You Madness. The past couple weeks, you have heard me go gaga over Me You Madness. Um, and for those of you that may not like this type of, of humor, this dark comedy, but rapier, very much akin to you get a Ros Russell, Cary Grant feel with the dialogue, um, with the rapidity, the rapier nature of it, um, impeccable production values with production design, costuming, cinematography. Um, it, everything, every, the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and the soundtrack is one that you want. And what I love about what Louise has done with Me, You, Madness is she has structured the film. There is something in there for from every decade, going back to the 40s, there are touchstones. We have the rapid patter comedy. We have femme fatales like Barbara Stanwyck's, Gene Tierney's. Um, we move in. You've got the music of the 80s. You think about top 10 hits, movies, and they're in here. As you'll hear in our conversation, I joked with her that more than half her budget must have gone for music licensing. Guess what? It did. Which makes the overall film and the production value and the polish of it even more remarkable. When that's where your budget went, was for the music. Um, it's, it's a fun interview. And, of course, I truly appreciate the fact, and I see it in her work. Uh, Louise is also a lawyer. She has her JD. She doesn't practice. She got her JD with the express purpose of using her legal knowledge for her production company, for all the contracts that you deal with, all of that fun stuff. And she is incredible. And as you can hear, she has a great sense of humor. And originally, I just spoke with her on Friday 
Originally, we were not going to air this today, but have it as a standalone later on. But as a favor to Louise, we are going to air it in today's show, which is why it's expanded um, because of her 92-year-old dad in Scotland who's going to be listening so he can hear his daughter talk about her film. Uh, And he is a COVID survivor. So I do nice things once in a while. Shh, don't don't let that get around. Uh, So that will be later on in the show at the hour mark. We're going to hear my interview with Louise. But very quickly, before we, before we jump into Nicholas's uh, interview, a, a couple of fun things here. If you haven't seen it, get on Disney Plus and watch WandaVision. Oh, my God. Blowing up social media. It's a wonder we didn't crash Disney Plus Friday night, uh, Thursday night at midnight uh, with uh, episode eight. Only one more episode to go. And... Disney, start the campaign now, not only for Elizabeth Olsen, but Katherine Hahn. She steals this series. She is a force of nature. She is incredible as Agatha. And she's even got a catchy theme song of her own. Um, So before the finale, before the series finale this Friday... I encourage you, binge it, binge it, see it. You will not be disappointed. And I'm chomping at the bit for how this ends. And this is truly a bridge to the next set of MCU movies. Uh, So all you MCU fans, if you're not watching WandaVision, do it. Because you're going to, you will see where the MCU is going uh, based on WandaVision. This is the connective tissue. And, of course, Golden Globes last night. We won't talk about the production itself. Uh, Some interesting winners in the film category. Some interesting losers. Mank, six nominations, no wins. That was a shocker. Chloe Zhao, Nomadland, best director, best best feature. And this is only the second uh, woman to ever win for best director. The first was Barbara Streisand over three decades ago for Yentl. Um, Andrew Day won Best Actress in a Drama for portraying Billie Holiday in United States versus Billie Holiday. The award, everybody, was holding their breath, crossing their hearts and their fingers. Chadwick Boseman won Best Actor in a Drama for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Roseman Pike picked up Best Actress in a Comedy, I Care a Lot. Sasha Baron Cohen walked away with Best Actor in a Comedy and Best uh, Picture, Musical, or Comedy for Borat's subsequent movie film. Uh, Jodie Foster, surprise to everybody, uh, picked up <clears throat> Best Supporting Actress for The Mauritanian. Best Supporting Actor was Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Best Animated Feature, tough category this year, folks, will be for the Oscars, too. Wins for Soul, Best Foreign Language Film, Minari. It is the darling, the darling of of the awards season. Let me tell you, Aaron Sorkin only picked up one award, Best Screenplay for Trial of the Chicago 7. Best Original Song, Diane Warren, another force uh, who has won everything there is. Uh, she and her co-writers won for their song, uh, Best Original Song of Scene, for the Sophia Loren movie, The Life Ahead. And, of course, the best score also went to Soul 
for that indefatigable team of Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, and their partner in crime, John Batista. So next up, we're going to have this Friday night, Hollywood Critics Association, of which I'm a member. Um, I think it's starting at 6 o'clock on the Hollywood Critics Association YouTube and Facebook pages. Um, you will watch the live stream of our virtual awards um, ceremony. And then we move on to Oscars. Oscar nominations voting starts Friday. Five days, all you Ampass members. Only five days to cast your nominations vote. 15th, we'll be talking about Oscar nominations. But right now, let us get started. Since we're already a long show today. <laughs> let me not make it any longer. Let's get started and take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Nicholas Jarecki, talking about crisis i'm here i am here i am i am so happy you are there i have been so looking forward to speaking to you again i was been so looking forward to your follow-up to arbitrage and damn you have not disappointed oh my goodness that is so nice of you to say well it, it's a pleasure to speak with you um and did we debbie we, we did do something on arbitrage we right? did we did yes. yes because i was just aghast by your production design and you set the standard for every film for the rest of time for that beautiful waterfall chandelier from ceiling to floor that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well yeah that was um uh, yeah, that was an incredible crystal piece. <laughs> so if I ever win the lottery and I want to get a mansion and put it, I've got to have that. I have to get that that crystal chandelier. <laughs> okay, well, I actually know where you can get that. That's um, Nadia Swarovski. Uh, she made that. She's the owner of Swarovski. Yeah. So, um, let me know when you hit <laughs> and uh, I'll give you a number. And I guess that would require financing your next film, too. Always welcome. Well, of course. Well... You have, as you did with Arbitrage, thoroughly researched. You have so much intrigue here. I love the multi-narrative storyline you have going. The three main ethical considerations, the three main societal and political and legal considerations of the entire opioid crisis. And you have it so succinctly laid out and then bring all of this from the different vantage points. It's very similar to the film's vantage point or to traffic or crash until everything converges. And just so well-crafted and the detail that you have from the different emotional perspectives is astounding. Wow, thank you. How did you even embark on this journey of crafting this script and what story you're going to tell because there are so many different paths you can take to tell the story of the opiate crisis just hone in on one uh, particular aspect you here have three main different prongs happening but it had to be difficult to hone in on how am I going to tackle this well so it's an excellent question um, I remember when I started Right. These things usually start from a personal place. So I had um, lost some friends who got involved with opioids um, and really couldn't understand it very well. 
Um, and I think this was quite a long time ago when very little was known. Um, but in the last five or 10 years, we've seen an explosion of the opioid problem. And, and why are there suddenly all these people addicted and in trouble or dying? And so, um, you know, what I did is I started with research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hooked up with these wonderful uh, reporters um, from the LA Times who'd uh, done a lot of investigation into the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and, you know, particularly w- what they knew or didn't know and when. Um, and at the same time, uh, I got connected with sources in law enforcement. Um, so a wonderful uh, retired uh, sheriff, uh, Steve Opperman, who became my consultant. And he had run the Prescription Narcotics Task Force um, in Los Angeles, been a key, key runner in it. And, um, and he had actually busted and taken down a lot of the cartels that I modeled things in the film after. So I had this wonderful trove of research and then I went out and I talked to pharma CEOs, um, and I had one of my executive producers was connected with the biotech industry and understood the FDA. So, uh, you know, at the same time, there were these personal stories. Um, and, you know, Evangeline Lilly's character in the film is going through this um, terrible experience. And that was sort of based on someone from my family where uh, they were murdered. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember the, the, the mother used to go sit outside the murderer's house before he was brought to justice and debate what to do about it. Um, so I, I thought, well, let me take this all and try to put it into a, a brew and see what comes out. And because the opioid topic, um, it is vast and it is complex. And, you know, uh, so I, I felt like, you know, looking at it from a multi-character approach would be the best way to capture it. Um, to give you the pharmaceutical side that Gary Oldman participates in, and we understand how the drugs are created and brought to market. Um, the law enforcement side, where you know even I'm in, and Michelle Rodriguez and we go uh, undercover with Jake um, and and look into the diversion and fentanyl, which is a real problem, uh, illicit fentanyl creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Evangeline's storyline of trying to you know a kind of detective thriller aspect. Um, and, and so the characters emerged in my mind, and I wrote storylines and started bringing them together in a synthesis, but always guided by this research, by these real-world events. You know, the film starts out with this boy in the snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a true story. I just took that straight from the news. There was wow. a kid caught uh, at the Canadian border with, you know, half a million pills on a sled. Um, and uh, so, so it was kind of fusing the true, the imagination, um, and I just thought that there had been a precedent for films like this with obviously Traffic being a great film of, about Mexico and uh, cocaine crisis 20 years ago, but no one had done this opioid topic. And um, so that was the impetus to do the film. Well, and I think this is something that is going. people may find surprising is the fact that I think pe- people still have in their minds drugs come in from south of the border. Uh, and after four years of Washington, that's what we kept hearing. Drug dealers, rapists, everybody's coming from south of the border into the United States. Here, you have the issue at the, at the north end of the continental United States, crossing lines from, with Canada in the United States. And I think that's, that's a real eye-opener. And plus... It gives you and your and your cinematographer, you and Nicholas, have a field day lensing that. My God, that is well, you, I, it's stunning, I, stunning. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, that border thing really did captivate me um, because you hear, oh, Mexico, we're going to build the wall, blah blah, 
And, um, you know, here you have the northern border, 2,000 miles, no patrol, yeah. no enforcement. You just walk across, do whatever you want. And so Montreal, I thought also, where a lot of the film takes place and where I shot, um, you know, is kind of a wonderful city uh, as an American, a city of the imagination. You know, it is incredibly beautiful. It's a dynamic cosmopolitan center. But there is a criminal underworld there. It's a, it's a port city, mm -hmm. you know. And like many port cities, it's a kind of could be a hub of smuggling. Um, and so I like the idea of, of, of smuggling and, and traffic and uh, trafficking things and, and the idea that there is no enforcement there at the border. So isn't that interesting? And isn't it kind of mysterious? You know, there's that wonderful actor, Guy Nadal, who plays Mother. Oh, he's, he's fabulous. A, a French Canadian treasure, but he's a little bit maybe inspired by a real character up there in Montreal Crime Syndicate, Mom Boucher, uh, you know, who knows? Um, but I just thought it's a whole world that hadn't been explored. So, um, so how fun to bring that uh, crime element to the fore. Um, in terms of the cinematography, I love the snow, um, you know, pictorially. And uh, we shot this on 35 millimeter Kodak film. I'm so excited. I'm so excited uh, that you did that. Well, I'm... thank you. And, and uh, I hope, you know, if we ever allowed to go to the theater again, you can see it in its full glory. But, um, but you know, it's, uh, 35 is, is, is beautiful in how it captures, you know, the light, yeah. uh, you know, the fall off. And I don't think we're there yet with digital, but mm -hmm. Nick Balduke, um, you know, he, he helped me make the decision to shoot in anamorphic widescreen. We were very influenced by the films of Michael Mann, of course, Heat, um, and, uh, you know, William Friedkin, even Catherine Bigelow. Um, and so we wanted to capture the scope and the vastness uh, of the environment up there. So that's how we start out in the beginning in the snow. I mean, I'll tell you, it was definitely very cold. Um, and we shot the first two days, the opening chase sequence. And we were using these uh, Panavision lenses, the C-series from 1968, uh, these huge lenses. They're very beautiful, very soft, fall off and bouquet. Yeah. But, you know, they're quite temperamental. It was so cold, they froze. So we had to take them and bring them to a heat lamp in between takes to warm up the glass so that we could get the image again. Um, it was definitely a challenge. Wow. Well, uh, the proof is in the pudding. You made the, you and, and Nicholas made the right choice because it looks beautiful. And the way that you capture that's, as you said, the fall off, but also the flares, the sun flares that it just picks up, particularly as the sun is reflecting off of snow or even in the snowy scene uh, near the beginning of the film. Those anamorphics play so well, and film just captures that so beautifully. Um, I am just enthralled with the cinematography. I, I am diehard. I love cinematographers, and I love what they can do with light and lens and uh, the fact you shot on film it adds that grain so you have a slick and gritty sensibility but it also allows for the cool richness the the fallout bluish palette uh in the color process and it really fits what this feels like it fits the 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 muddy the muddiness of the whole opi opioid uh, business. Well, I'm going to have to set you up uh, with Kodak. I actually just was the recipient this year of the Kodak Auteur Award, 
uh, my good friends over there who we got a lot of film from, uh, they would love to hear you, I'm sure, as an advocate of, uh, of the film medium. But I agree with you. I mean, the bouquet, the blue, um, you know, and it's not only in the landscapes, right? It's, it's because we do a lot with faces of this yes, film. It's... You know, we're very close with those lenses and, and the widescreen accommodates it. Um, and so you see the, the light on the faces and the softness. You know, I like films. And look, I like everything, but I think you see today with a trend towards digital cinematography, there's this crispness and a certain harshness. And I feel like one of the things I loved about films growing up as a kid, going to the cinema to watch them, was there was a layer of abstraction to it. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a layer of beauty. So maybe you go into these dark places, but, you know, the cinematography almost in a way that you might capture Garbo or something, you know, <laughs> this beautiful light on faces. And there's a softness, there a humanity to it. So I think um, I think film captures that quality still is the best origination. For and, it. and it works perfectly telling this story, Nicholas. Um, it, it works perfectly for it because you do want to, you do, you don't want to get your hands dirty. So it metaphorically gives you a little bit of hands-off distance. So you're not okay. touching those pills. You're not pulling the triggers. It's, it's an interesting effect that you get when you watch a film like this on film. And it's just so well done and plays with your moral ambiguity as well. Because that's something you really explore. And it's a testament to the actors that you hired. I will tell you in all candor, I have never really been a big Army Hammer fan. This film is probably... I think one of the best performances he's ever given. Well, um, you know, he he was uh, tremendously dedicated. You know, as were all the actors, um, and I think uh, I think you see that on display. You know, the way I like to approach him, I I can't recall if we talked about this with arbitrage or not, but you know, I write the script, and then. That's really, it's a first draft, you know? I mean, yes, I'll work on it and I'll obsess about it, um, but then I give it to the actors, okay? So I was, I grew up and I remember reading, making movies by Sidney Lumet, and he spoke about this process that he did in Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino, and um, John Cazale, you know, died untimely, um, where he would, you know, the script was a starting point, and then they would do, as we, as I do, you know, three or four weeks rehearsal, and really go in and explore everything, turn it all upside down, and tape record the sessions, and then he would go back and integrate that into the script. So I, I took a page from uh, Sydney, uh, Mr. Lumet, and um, and really try to put that into my work, where I'm very stimulated by the actors and their input. You know, if you have an actor like Gary Oldman, oh. <laughs> I mean, he's a great, Evangeline Lilly, Olam, Kinnear, uh, you know, they're, they're students of human nature, so why wouldn't you want to benefit from the input that they bring to it. So then, okay, during the rehearsal process, that becomes now a second draft. Of course, it's, um, it's very annoying to the, uh, to the producers um, because all of a sudden your 100-page script becomes 140, and they go, well, you just increased the budget by 40%. Um, so now you've got to play Shrinko a little bit and try to get back in. And then that's a process that continues into editing. You know, and I like to bring in, I'm not that filmmaker that sits, okay, this is my vision, you know, exactly. I brought in, you know, my friend uh, Taika Waititi or Eli Roth, um, Mark Forrest, or all these great different directors coming in, uh, you know, editors, um, a brilliant young woman, Monica, who worked on this film. Uh, you know, uh, so 
you know, and, and I like to play it for audiences and see how they react and let all of that conversation shape the film, you know, until you reach a place where somebody says, you know, you never stop working on a film, you just abandon it. Well, um, yeah. so, uh, so that's how we get there. With the talent that you have, it's an embarrassment of riches. The fact that we get to see Evangeline Lilly really stretch herself again. Um, we're so used to seeing her in the MCU that now to get to see her emotionally stretch is fabulous. To have Greg Kinnear not be the, the really nice guy that most people think of him for with a role is fantastic. And watching Lily Rose, she is, she's got, the, the camera loves her, but her performance is riveting. You cannot look away from her. But then you've got to put all this in the hands of Duff Smith, whose work I love as an editor. What he did with Pontypool what is amazing. And to see him work with you and integrate these three distinct narratives in terms of pacing and the ultimate uh, conclusion. It's so well done, so well balanced. How challenging was this editing process well, thank you for saying all that. I mean, I definitely agree with you about the actors. You know, Greg's been a family friend for decades, um, and I asked him to come do this for me as a favor. I got to know Lily over the course of the last few years, Lily wrote that. Um, you know, and she had a friend that she really modeled the character after um, who, who had been through addiction struggles and, and helped to show her the path. Um, and then Evangeline Lily, um, you know, I watched every episode of Lost, you know, so <laughs> I knew wow, what a range of emotion she had and could display. And I think that was one of the reasons this role appealed to her because she'd been working in these larger budget productions and, and you know, those are great fun and very compelling films. But, uh, you know, she felt, oh, I've got these muscles. They started to atrophy a little bit and I want to stretch. And this is an opportunity where I have the freedom to develop the character. Um, and so it was a great, a great synthesis. She gave an incredible performance um, and I'm, I'm really thankful. Um, Duff, poor Duff, oh my goodness. So I had him come here from Canada, and you know we sat here in my house uh, editing the film. We had three different edit rooms going at the same time. He's supervising his, and then, you know, I'm really of the no stone unturned school. Um, so, you know, let's try this, let's, let's go do a screening. Oh, we'd be in the editing room at William Morris about to screen of 50 people and we'd be making changes in the cut in the editing room. We'd bring the avid with us. You know, he started to think I was insane, but then he got into it and he's making changes right before we're about to unfurl it for the audience. So, um, I think it was a real, uh, trial by fire for Duff and he rose, rose to the occasion. Um, and he would, you know, we'd work 12, 15 hours a day, um, you know. But what he brought to it was a great sense of montage. Um, when we put the film together originally, you know, we had almost a three-hour cut. And then we said, okay, this is not, this is not the appropriate length. we got to get, you know, we're an hour 50 in the end. Um, but we said, okay, but we don't want to throw this out. So how are we going to use this imagery? How are we going to do montage? How are we going to connect and link these stories? And I think that's also where the score came in. Uh, I used the young, up-and-coming, brilliant composer Raphael Reed, and then I had my usual composer, Cliff Martinez, uh, <laughs> as a kind of godfather of the project. And so uh, finding that the, the musical underpinnings, you know, that we could use to link footage 
and give you a kind of dreamlike quality to go along with the imagery um, was something that we had great fun doing. We spent a lot of time on it, um, but uh, but I think in the end, you know, it was worth it. One last question for you then, because this is your second feature, another massive and wonderfully done film. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, in making Crisis that you can now take forward into your next project? That's an excellent question. Um, what I liked about this film uh, is that I got to stretch as a director. You know, I hadn't filmed action before. Um, I hadn't worked with a cast this large and of such gifted actors. Um, and... Uh, you know, interweaving these stories, um, doing something from multiple viewpoints. So um, I got to experiment a lot, and I got to learn, and I got to learn technically, and I got to learn thematically. So I think for the next project, you know, it's um, it's really figuring out, uh, you know, what is the now? I think what is the next thing we want to look at in society? Because, you know, I love films that are, you know, straight ahead or imaginative, but ultimately, I like these films that peel back a kind of corner of something that's going on, something that's very much in the current, in the in the thought stream, uh, and that may be misunderstood. So I think I'm thinking more and more about, you know, what are these things in society that we want to look at uh, and gain a better understanding of their complexities? And I do think it'll stay in these morally gray areas because that's where the fun is. It sure is, and it's so much fun to watch it when you tell it. Oh, Nicholas, thank you so much. I cannot wait for the next one. Deb, it was a pleasure, and um, thanks, thanks for all your time and, and your really close and thoughtful watch. And that was Nicholas Jarecki talking about Crisis. It is in limited theaters right now. Obviously not in Los Angeles because theaters are still closed. Uh, but around the country... There are theaters that are open. Look for it. But never fear if you're not near a theater that's open. Because this Friday, March 5th, Crisis will be streaming on all of your platforms. So I can't recommend it highly enough. It is another in-depth, thoughtful, provocative film from Nicholas Jarecki. Wonderful production values. Again, cinematographer Nicholas Bolduck. Um, wonderful, wonderful work. Um, scoring Raphael Reed and Duff Smith, his editing, he worked on Pontypool and Defendor, uh, two small films, but they rank high on my all-time list of excellence. Um, and of course the film stars Gary Oldman, Army Hammer, Evangeline Lilly, Greg Kinnear, Michelle Rodriguez, Lily Rose Depp, and we cannot forget Luke Evans as the, uh, pharmaceutical head uh the head of the pharmaceutical company a very interesting turn by luke evans uh but again crisis and thank you thank you thank you nicholas and thank you cassie for making this happen uh this great interview now we're gonna switch gears here we're gonna switch gears here and welcome back to wonderful filmmakers who I adore, Andre Phillips and Charles Volo. Are you guys both there? Yes, yes. we are. Hi. Hi. How are you? Oh, we're doing pretty well. We're doing we're doing very well. So excited to see the film come out. Thanks for having us. 
Ah, well, I promised you two years ago. As we see what happens, you know, you got to come back. Um, And lo and behold, here we are. When we last spoke, the film was on the fest circuit. You were at Cinequest. You had a few more screenings at Cinequest. And then then you went through all the rigors of the distribution, the sale and distribution process. Yeah. and now here you are. And as of this past Friday, Lupe is streaming on HBO Max. Yeah, which is still crazy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about landing and opening gig, guys. That's this is fabulous. Fabulous. But very well very well deserved. So now for for those that don't remember or are a little hazy on the story of Lupe, what it is, bring everybody up to speed on what the story is about. Sure. Um, so Lupe tells a story of a character who is recently immigrated states in search of uh, sister. While they're undergoing that search, they're also with and grappling with their own identity. Uh-oh, we're losing you in here. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I can you... Yeah, you're, bra- you're breaking up here, so I lost you there. Oh, no. shoot. Um, I, I apologize. Can you hear us now? Uh, we've got pauses in between, but yeah, we can hear you. We'll, we'll move to a different location. Yeah. Are so, you are you guys uh, on a cell phone? We are because our landline app won't turn on for some reason. We're, we apologize. <laughs> um, but hopefully, if you can hear us, any oh, this now, sounds Lube much better. This is much better. Um, Lupe tells the story of a, a character who's just recently emigrated to the United States and is searching for their missing sister in New York City, and while they're doing so, are coming to terms with their own gender identity. And um, it also incorporates elements of boxing, and it incorporates the immigration story, the transgender story, and hopefully we, we believe just a, a real character piece that we hope uplifting and, and beautiful. Yeah, and, and I said this before, and I stand by it. This is a beautifully quiet character study on multiple levels. And the sensitivity with which you explore uh, Raphael's self-identity, Lana's self-identity, um, and you incorporate, you don't hide anything. You set this in the underbelly of places in New York that we aren't used to seeing on film. Uh, And in the past two years since I first saw Lupe, I'm still not seeing them on film. So (laughs) your your location is actually a very strong character in this film as it really represents, metaphorically speaks to hiding, to covering, to Mm. to what has to be uncovered, what needs to be brought out into the light. And, you know, we've got Raphael's sister of Isabel, who's missing. He's trying to find her. Raphael, who is trying to discover who they is are. Um, and then Celia um, Harrison plays Lana, 
who, and Celia just blows it out of the water. She is, Celia is amazing. The first time I watched it, amazing. And even, and watching it again, you really see more nuance and layers. And especially in the scenes between she and Raphael Alberon, um, because in character, they play best friends. And they truly come across as best friends. Like two people that have known each other for life. And know every secret about one another. And will take them to their grave. Um, strong, mm-hmm. strong yeah. chemistry and dynamic there. Um, I'm curious how you developed this script. Because I know part of it is not even really scripted. Yeah, right. yeah. It, um, we went to the film the first round in New York with forty-seven page script that was largely some scripted moments, but so many improv moments. And we would go to you know we were speaking with Celia beforehand um, before we even met her in person, and we would um, kind of go over idea and hear what she had to say. And then on the day we'd bring those ideas back up and say, in this scene we had discussed this, let's try to act this out and take it away. And we'd really leave it. For Raphael to find the moment and, and do different things in the scene and try different things, and they really found the, they really found that those special moments, and we were lucky enough to be there in the corner with a camera filming it. Yeah, and I think part of what you mentioned there, um, this is up there by the way, and that was Chuck who was just speaking, just for anybody who can try and turn our voices. <laughs> um, but the uh, we um, one thing that so was you know just an incredible kind of magical that happens when you start you know, in getting into production and stuff is that even though we didn't have really any rehearsal time for, um, for Celia and Raphael and, uh, Celia actually stayed in my apartment, served as my tiny little studio apartment in Queens that served as our crew house. She actually stayed with us while we were filming those early scenes. And, um, her, you know, her stuff was the first stuff that we jumped into. And, um, her and Raphael met at the apartment the day before we started. And really the way that they come across on camera was apparent by the end of that first meeting. They they became fast friends so quickly and um their it like their that closeness that developed between them that was happened so quickly allowed us to go further into some of the subject matter than we in those few days that we had with her ever could have otherwise because her and Rafael were just really uncovering incredible stuff with each other. And I should also add something that as we've been doing this the press interviews and things up up to the release We've been fortunate to learn a lot of things and a lot of stories that we didn't know because, you know, on set, we're over here with the camera person. We're over here trying to figure out a locations issue while the talent's talking amongst themselves and mm-hmm. hair and makeup or wherever. And one of the things we've learned from this is that Raphael said when, when Celia first showed up to set, she took Raphael's side, who Raphael's a trained actor, and she said, I'm scared I've ever asked for tell me what to do. And in a very similar way, Raphael, who was just beginning uh, his, uh, you know, <laughs> complex and, and interesting journey of gender identity, was in some ways trusting Celia with these questions and ideas. So in a way, they leaned on each other in a fascinating way and wow. were really exploring and understanding things on the fly. It was very organic. And I think the audience is catching on just to the genuineness of it all. Um, it was something we couldn't have, we couldn't have uh, captured as filmmakers storyboards if we tried this was something that organically happened on the day and we were just so fortunate to be there yeah watching the two of them together it is magical and they are they create a heartbeat they create a heartbeat of one for this film um that really carries it 
and you know one of the one of the big parts of this film in Raphael's quest to discover who they are um, is our flashbacks and I I talked with you about this before but I still I just love that you did this your flashbacks to Raphael as a young boy growing up in Cuba you shot in the Dominican Republic for Cuba because of our ongoing wonderful relations with the country (laughs) Uh, but your flashbacks are vibrant they're alive you've got color you've got clothes on the clothesline you've got green fields blue skies your uh, the cameras is a little wider than it is within present day in the city and you have a young actor pedro rodriguez who just lights up the screen how challenging (laughs) was it you've got rafael as the adult Raphael, you got Celia, you have Luceris Medina as Isabel. Where do you find a young Raphael who can set the stage for what is to come for his adult counterpart? Well, you did the um, yeah. He um, Pedro was, was first of all he was phenomenal, and I'm so glad that you you know mentioned this performance because I think that sometimes flashbacks are easy with all that happens in, in the current. Kind of overlook how how well I, I, well acted Pedro was as, as a little kid and the and everybody did such a phenomenal job. Um, he um, when Claudia Acevedo who did our casting in in the Dominican Republic, um, you know I I I landed there um, maybe a night before we had our casting call. I, I went up to this place, uh, met everybody for the first time. I think Pedro was like the first or second person who came in for the role, and. Um, Right away, I was like, "Oh my god, he looks like a fan. And um, and then from there, we kind of we talked a lot about a bit about who the, the older character was going to become, but really a lot more we focused on sort of his current circumstance with his sister and how important their relationship was, and how they were very much, you know, they have a little bit of a found family, but very much alone together. Um, and that's really what I wanted to focus on with the character there, and then kind. Of some ways we decided um, to allow other characters' reactions to Raphael mm-hmm. tell some of that wider story about who they would become later on and, and what maybe older people might be picking up on in this little kid who might not yet, you know, fully have the terms for who they they, they will become um, at times. Um, but but Pedro was really such a champ. I mean, we're out there in really hot weather out in the fields around in sugarcane fields. Um, he was he was as professional, if not more so, than than I certainly was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, he was he was genuinely um, kind of a joy to work with. For he was just so easygoing for for doing. I mean, really, like you know, hard days, hard hot days. You know, yeah, he lights up the screen. The camera and the camera yeah. loves him. Loves him. <laughs> he is very facially expressive. And yeah. you, this is not an adult in a child's body. This, and you know what I'm talking about. So often when you're casting kids, it's like they have the wisdom of a 40-year-old. And you feel like you're talking to an adult squashed in, or watching an adult squashed in a kid's body. No. Yeah. Pedro, <laughs> Pedro comes across 
as a kid, a little kid, and it is enjoyable, and you feel you feel his questioning, you feel his joy, you feel his closeness with his sister. It's beautiful to watch. Pedro is he's he is something. He's really yeah. something. Uh, you know, I would love to see him do something else while he's still oh, a kid. <laughs> yeah, while he's still yeah, right. A yeah, it was so great watching it too because we see one of our producers describe Lupe as oh, it's a very lived-in movie. And as you say this, I'm starting to realize what he might have meant because when we were out there filming, in some ways, Luceres, who's an actor that he had just met, because they were in so many scenes together, she started taking over the role of the big sister, where she'd say, "Oh, come over here, it's time to eat," or "Oh, yeah. I need to you," and she speak Spanish and bring him over. And if he didn't understand something we were saying uh, in English, she would translate it and help him out and make sure he was where he had to be. And so it was. They kind of became older brother, uh, little brother and older sister on the day as a filming. Um, and so no doubt those scenes when they're walking together, it was just an extension of that. And it wasn't blocking. They just were talking and walking like they were, you know, when we weren't rolling camera. So that organic, lived in, uh, familial feeling on set was, was really quite something. Wow. Because it really comes across on screen. And that is one of... The- I, that is one of the strongest aspects of this film, of Lupe, is the heart and the and the connective tissue, the human connective tissue among these characters really comes across. You feel the heartbeat of this film through their performances and through the chemistry, and that's thanks to the incredible casting that the two of you did. Um that really, you know, brings this one home. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, how did, one of the funnest parts. Of I've got. I've got to ask you. Uh, we've got to talk about T. Acton Fitzgerald again, um, mm-hmm. and finding these locations, and then making the decision and the vibrancy of color, and the lighting design, and your decisions to go handheld with this one. Um, Mm. Plus shooting night for night, I said it before. I'll say it again. Bless you. Uh, it does make a difference, especially with the locations that you chose for this film. Which locations, as a rule in this film, are very specific and a, and a character amongst themselves, unto themselves. So I'm curious about your process of working with T. Acton and tackling these issues yeah I, you know and to start you know Tekken had he had an extra challenge amongst every challenge that we had on the next some of the locations he wasn't able to get discovered beforehand and rely either just mine or mine um scouting our photos you know do a video call if we could um but a lot of it was you know, we knew the kind of spaces that we wanted to the character of it um I've, as a kid, had been going to New York City um, and kind of visiting with friends, families. I was 11. Um, I recently moved there full time, uh, and so you know, I would do some some of the initial scouting, some kind of spotting places. Chuck would, was doing research online, and then would come meet me in New York. You drive down, and we'd spend these crazy long weekends uh, driving. There was a day that we did um, from the north from up north in Harlem, all the way down to Pony Island, across to um, cross back down to southern Manhattan, up 
down and back over to Queens um, in a single day. And, you know, just scouting locations, getting things down, crawled all over Bushwick, all along the seven train. And, the, you know, New York is just, and this is even before we get to the Dominican Republic, it's just such an incredible location to spend if you're willing to go into some un, un you know, normally seen places and, and kind of poke around. Uh, at the largest in this actually an overnight we are manageable. Um, because it turns out that if you have 300 bucks, you can actually get a permit to close a street in Brooklyn, which was a big surprise to us. Um, but it just kind of goes to show how can, if you're, if you're willing to be flexible, you can find it to turn these locations in a big city like New York City to your Um, you know, and, and shooting night for night, such it is, I don't want to say easy in New York because I'm sure Tiafu <laughs> would throw me if I said that, but the city is, it's lit, vibrant. It looks like a, almost like a film and when it rains and you have all those lights going and it's not, how could you not want to shoot there? Yeah. It's just, I think everybody who's been to seen images of New York City, especially at night in the rain, everybody has their own emotion, that, um, which is something that we were really lucky to be able to capture. No, no, I was just, I, 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 and, you know, it was so much fun looking for these, you know, interesting locations hideaways throughout New York, same in the, in the Batay Village in Dominican Republic. I mean, we were off the beaten trail that we were off GPS for us. We were off dirt mm-hmm. roads and our fixer had to stop, pull, uh, ask someone, hey, where is this uh, Batay Village? Very remote and packed in and the whole visual team did an astounding job adapting, walking into a location for the first time, the camera and just going. No storyboards. All, half the time, we were super wide. Myself and Andre would have to be tough and it would be Tom and Luceres and Tom and Pedro running through the fields together, capturing these moments, and we had to fully trust that they were all capturing this together, which they did. Um, and so we couldn't have had a better, um, a better day at the helm, just rolling and making everything look beautiful and emotional. No, when to get out of the way and not worry about it, but getting in close with the camera and just capturing the eyes of the characters, the vibe, which yeah. I think really comes across in the end. Being able to, I think. You know, not that the Dominican Republic is an incredible location anyway, be, and as is New York, but I think what he was did so phenomenal was be able to walk, as I said, kind of walk into some, some of these locations, you know, for the first time um, and see very quickly the value that we were seeing in it and seeing how to maximize and in many ways improve upon that value. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, really, because it, it's one thing to go to an amazing location and shoot, but it's another thing to go to those Really, how to make you know to, to bring the, the most the version of those those incredible clouds in the middle. Really, how to kind of capture the the in and out of the of the light as you walk down the street and you really play on someone's face. Like it takes a, a talented artist like go from just filming a location mm-hmm. to really like capturing it it art. Um, so we we're just so incredible incredible we to be able to work with him as a partner in that in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, very impressed with his work. You know, I've got to ask you about working with your editor, with Sharon Amir, uh, and finding the pacing here. Because of the mm. sensitive nature of the story in and of itself, because you ha- you're working with flashbacks, because you have the whole idea of searching. Searching can be very tedious, depending on, how, be it emotional searching, mm-hmm. physical searching, it can be tedious, it can be monotonous, and you can lose your audience. You don't do that here. How challenging mm-hmm. was the edit? Uh, and how, how, you know, 
how did you go about uh, doing the editing with Shiran? Sure, yeah. So it was it was certainly challenging in many ways. We we were so fortunate to have Shiran. Couldn't have been the more perfect editor for this project. Um, but due to the, how we did capture things, which was very much on the fly, very genuine, authentic, mm-hmm. um, we often wouldn't get two takes of the same. Um, we wanted the characters. We didn't want them to be blocked and rehearsed and hitting their light. We wanted them to move naturally and organically and speak truthfully. And that would mean that every take would be a little different, beautiful in its own way. So it was a challenge for her, but she just absolutely knocked it out of the park. And there was definitely challenges. We had to go back and forth on many things. We had to rethink some things that we were stuck in our ways about. And she was stubborn and said, no, you're thinking about it wrong. And, and every single time she was right in the end, and she made it uh, the film that it is, 100%. Oh, because yeah, your, your pacing is great. Oh, sorry. No, it's just the pacing is great. It's very even. Um, you have a great balance between the flashbacks and the present, and the emotional beats. You know, you're not. Oh, that's great. You're not stacked heavy on one end or the other. Uh, and with a film like this, again, I think that's very important that you find that even rhythm, and you've done that. Uh, no, thank you so much. I, I think that is, you know, we obviously we set off to make a balanced rhythmic, you know, film that that you know hits those story and sorts that you you want to hit. But on the day when you when you have to, make, you know, you have to adapt to the realities of your budget, your life, what you know, whatever the case is, and things shift a little bit. It, it really does, it really does go to show where an editor and can either do, you know a lot of really drastic work in our case really pull these disparate threads together and, and kind of build that beautiful flow like like right um or even to, to pull things that could be in, in other cases you really see like just the incredible power of editing and how the film you know i know some people say the film was made in the room or some people say the film was remade in the editor room or reborn um and obviously it's always different circumstances, but you can definitely you know really experience the power and the enhancement what great editing and talented editors can bring to a story. Uh, if, if all all things be well edited film or less well edited film, the well, most more well edited film is going to be more effective, um, no matter what, regardless of budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it's just one. It was definitely one of the most incredible processes to see what how Sharon took it from you know where we handed it off to her. Where, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and even forcing us at times to say, you know. I think a lot of times directors are so in love with everything that they pull, you know, they want to put every scene in the film, every minutes. We you know there were times that some of the was, I don't want to say too sensitive, but so sensitive that we had, you know, we kind of were chasing ourselves and had to deal with it. Jerron and our incredible producer, Perry Michelle O'Brien, were this amazing team, both sometimes pushing us really forcibly or sometimes, you know, holding our hands and, and showing some of these incredible moments that uh, really deserve even more time. Um, so it's just it's amazing how you know cutting can mean both sometimes getting rid of things, but also sometimes finding the right things and enhancing those. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know it's just a, it's, an amazing, it's a really fun process. I'm I'm a horrible editor, but it's a work with great <laughs> editors. Like <laughs> you know your strengths and weaknesses. That's the important part. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've got I've got to ask you guys, how ha- was the distribution process for you? Was this culture shock for you? Um, did you want to go jump out a 30-story building uh, as you're going through the distribution process? What has that? What was that like? 
when you got off the fest circuit and you're starting and distributors are starting to come to you and you've got to make these big decisions? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think we really had a big um, wake up call about all the things we hadn't learned. You know, and, you know, we were super excited right out of Cine Press. We were having a time with the sales at Storyline. They've been fantastic. They, they continued the festival run for about a year, uh, getting some screeners nationally, getting us some uh, remote um, days and, and, and things like that, just getting the buzz out. Once that wrapped up, they've done the sales process which we're in now. And uh, the first sale was HBO, which was thrilling. But, you know, learning how to jump you see and the deliverables process, legal process, this is mind-numbing. We just had to catch up on stuff we didn't know about how to deliver a film and all the subtitles I needed and all the legal documents that I needed. We thought it buttoned up. Turned out HBO was one of the most stringent and for good reason. That's the biggest one out there. So we had to really get our act together. But it was a fascinating learning experience. And uh, I think hopefully we'll be a little bit more at next time. But, you know, Shoreline we held our hand through the way. Couldn't be more grateful. Yeah. And, you know, this is a great time to plug our color in uh, in New Orleans. Uh, Bradley Greer of Kyoto Color, he, he, you know, he's delivering really sized films to, to major fairly regularly. So he, he, as we were bringing requests, he was, oh yeah, it's a normal thing to ask for. But to us, some of the terms, friends, and um, so he was you know, just incredible at not only delivering just so well, but also managing two super directors who have never heard of stuff they're asking. Um, you know, so it was, it was not, it was a lot of things you don't learn in film school or <laughs> that a lot of filmmakers might not themselves in this position because they maybe they have more infrastructure behind their project or their, it, you know, so it was, it's very unique to write, write something and also, you know, get the email from Shoreline and then on the Sunday being like, Hey guys, get ready for, you know, a bunch of work because HBO film that is something, you know, I think, and I would like to think that it's in terms of experience and, um, it was, it was hard, you know, it, it would start to scramble and get all these very technical deliverables together. But again, luckily Bradley and, and Sam Costas, our, our sound engineer, it saved our lives essentially and saved the problem. <laughs> well, it's worth it in the end since now your film is streaming on HBO Max and everyone yeah. can see it. Um, it's very exciting. I'm so happy for you guys. This is this is great. Oh, thank you very much. You know, now you have to get back to yeah. work and make another film. Absolutely. Yeah, we have um, one last trial. We'll be doing a, uh, a remote uh, view party, watch party with uh, with film about this Friday. Mm-hmm. Watching that streaming on HBO. And then after that, yep, driving it next one. Well, I can't wait. And you better come back on the show with that one. Oh, absolutely. If you'll have us. Yeah, exactly. Of course I'll have you. Oh, my gosh. Guys, Andre, Chuck, thank you so much. Um, this has been so much fun. I am. I love a journey like this, um, to be there at Fest, and now here you are. You're streaming on HBO Max. This is phenomenal. It doesn't feel real. I do wish more of this industry was having such nice, thoughtful conversations about films as one that we just had. So we really do appreciate you having us. Always, guys. And I can't wait for the next time. Definitely. Thank you. And we'll talk later. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.
And that was Andre Phillips and, and Charles Volo talking about Lupe. It's on HBO Max. It is a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, and it is. It's very exciting when you're there early on and uh, then it comes to fruition uh, for filmmakers, especially very deserving and very grateful ones like Chuck and Andre. Well, we're going to switch gears again. And we're going to jump into the Magnificently Mad Me, You, Madness uh, and our exclusive interview with writer, director, and star Louise Linton. And just as, as you know, a matter of point, Ed Westwick co-stars with her in the film, uh, she is. She plays Catherine Black, very wealthy, um, very prim, proper, uh, very witty, sly, devious. And when she gets upset, body parts seem to start popping up in places. Uh, in the trunks of cars, in the freezer, in the garage. You never know. But Catherine Black likes to eliminate problems and do it efficiently. I can relate to this. Uh, Ed Westwick plays a con man named Tyler Jones, and he and his partners have set Catherine as their next mark. But as he soon finds out once he meets her, he doesn't just want to steal and her stuff uh, that's worth mil- and fence it because it's worth millions. He wants to steal some of what she has some of that polish, that education, that that smarts. And it is the film is so much fun to watch. I know there are a lot of reviews out there that are not too complimentary about this film. And I hate to say it, but I think a lot of the naysaying is more politically motivated because Louise's husband is Steve Mnuchin. Uh, former Secretary of the Treasury under Donald Trump. Um, and I really hate to think that, but I have to when I look at some of the things that have been said because it's not constructive as to the film itself because this film, the production values are exceedingly high. The attention to detail is exemplary. Uh, the cohesiveness, but the way Louise has structured this film, she breaks the fourth wall. She throws in these hilarious, quote-unquote, public service announcements. Uh, it's, it is just so much fun. And, of course, as I said at the top of the show, the soundtrack, it, it is worth seeing this film just for the soundtrack. And we're not talking just eight bars of something. We are talking good, like 50% of a song of these top 10 songs uh, from the 80s. So without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Louise Linton talking Me You Madness. Hey, Debbie, how's it going? It is going fabulously since I get to talk to you about this film. I freaked out with the trailer. I saw the film. This is brilliant, brilliant. It is magnificently mad. Thank you. I am so in love with this film, Louise. Oh, you and I, I love hearing that. 
But I have to say, one of the things that really stands out for me with Me You Madness is the way you, number one, as a wordsmith, you are fabulous. Fabulous. Oh, thank you. As thank a, you. As a wordsmith. And that comes from, tri you know, from trial work and writing briefs. You know what? It also comes from, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a cinephile, and I, I love to watch old movies. And a lot of the movies um, around the 1950s had a lot of sort of double-speak fast talk. Mm -hmm. And a good example is His Girl Friday. Oh, my favorite. And if you watch that, the, the characters are so snappy, and it's, yeah. it's almost like they're playing ping-pong, but verbal ping-pong. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. And it took a lot of rehearsal for us to really get it get it right because obviously there's a lot of lines to memorize. Um, but I, I really enjoy I really enjoy that sort of real fast um, fast chat. <laughs> yeah, that's I immediately thought of Roz Russell as I started watching you and you started getting going with the monologues and with the dialogue exchanges. And His Girl Friday has long been one of my favorites for that very reason. For that snappy exactly me too oh just absolutely fabulous but what i also see in your contra in your construct of this story i this is why i know why you did so well in trial advocacy because i see it in the way you have constructed this script and your reveals you're you're telling a story you're putting on a trial and you're breaking the fourth yeah. wall so you're talking it's as if you're talking to the jury and the fact that when you break the fourth wall here, you had me in stitches with every moment because the bulk of those fourth walls were your own public service announcements. <laughs> Louise, you just, you hit every possible thing I could ever want to see in a film. I am so excited to hear that. You know, that's what I wanted to make. I, I wanted to make a movie that was entertaining, first off, but and funny, but that also has heart. And I hope that when people watch it, they, they do laugh a lot. There's a lot of really goofy jokes in there. There's a lot of um, secret, hidden hidden uh, Easter eggs, I call them, mm -hmm. but references to other films. Oh. Um, you know, whether it's whether it's Wall Street or Basic Instinct, you know, there's a, or, or American Psycho. There's lots of little buried treasure in this film for, for people who love cinema and who love movies. Um, but but I, I did, I wanted to, to make something that was a thriller and a comedy and romantic and, you know, slightly gory and with elements of horror. I just wanted to take every movie genre and squish them all together in one big, delicious ice cream pie of, of, of cinema fun. Oh, you, absol you absolutely did. And it is that meld that you do so well as we're bouncing with everything. But when you talk about having heart, I have to commend you because this is has so many shades of like a 1950s musical. The way you take your needle drops and you bring them in very much the way the songs were the were the lyrics of songs were the dialogue in films in the golden age of Hollywood. It's like we're watching, you're dropping, it must have been love, and immediately you think a pretty woman and you get sad because you remember, you know, Vivian's in the back of the limo and she'd said no to Edward and it was raining, and, or you do Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing and you're imagining Johnny Castle and Baby Houseman dancing, and then you do the I'm So Excited montage, that you just blow it out of the water. But these, these segments, these songs are so key. 
here again, in your construct of the story, and they are serving as dialogue. And the way you have... have they crafted, really are. Oh. I, I love... I feel like you get this movie more than anybody else actually gets this movie. <laughs> I love it. When I, wrote the, when I wrote the screenplay, I actually wrote in each of these songs because I, I did... I wanted to, to borrow the nostalgia that people feel when they hear these, you know, these anthems from the 80s that have been in so many other movies like Footloose and Flashdance um, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, there are so many musical references and, of course, Pretty Woman. Um, and I, I really wanted people to sort of feel this nostalgia uh, when they hear these, these incredible songs. And I, I love that you, you, you understood that um, pretty woman moment where, you know, he's sort of sad and it's like this point of reflection in the film. And um, that was one of my favorite scenes in, in Pretty Woman. And I really wanted to get that rock set song in there. And I was really lucky. I mean, between the Pointer Sisters and Denise Williams and Taylor Dane and the Thompson Twins and General Public and AHA and The Cure, Tiffany, Director, uh, Duran, Duran, Roxette. I mean, I really wanted this to be almost like an, uh, an MTV video. <laughs> it really, it is fabulous. And as I'm, I'm watching the film, and with each top 10 song that comes in, I'm like, what does she do? Use the whole budget for needle drops? Your music super. <laughs> Jason, Jason Altshuler must have done an amazing job for you uh, securing rights to these songs yeah, and getting them. It, it's yeah. just outstanding but then you look at your production design you look at the cinematography and i have to tell you louise your visual tonal bandwidth is so strong you keep this light and bright so that even when you go into the quote-unquote horror moments or gory moments it never it never feels dark like a horror movie everything is kept light the entire balance that you have in keeping Working with your cinematographers, you keep everything light and bright. So even during horror sequences, they're not horrific. And they come across, you see what's happening, and yeah, you get the horror, but it's funny. It's entertaining. It's meant to be. Exactly, exactly. Actually, I, I spent um, four months... Um, between November and March, working on the colors, the tones, the hues, the saturation, and um, you'll notice also there's a lot of neon in the film. Yes. And that was, again, part of an homage to the 80s, but also, as a filmmaker, I just love saturated colors, mm -hmm. and I... And I love, you know, make, making the, um, you know, the, the I want to make it like a piece of art, you know, mm -hmm. where there's a very, very strong aesthetic, both in the costumes and in the lighting. Oh, and you absolutely succeed, and your production designers, an amazing, amazing job, as your costumer did, and, and I'm looking, and I even see, like, the glassware, it looks like a Waterford pattern that you yeah. have, and I'm like, okay, tell me she didn't spend yeah. money on Waterford, but went with the Manchester by Anchor Hawking, which is the same thing, but in an affordable <laughs> glass. Yeah, exactly, I was... I was I was very, very involved in um, all of the production design, down to the type of sheets that Catherine would sleep in. I remember being on set, and uh, the production designer, one of the production designers, pulled out these sort of um, very casual um, sheets, and I panicked. I said, wait a minute, Catherine Black wouldn't have these sheets. <laughs> I mean, it says in the screenplay, you know, this thousand Egyptian thread count um, 
13 sheep. So we actually sent someone from the set on a wild goose chase into Malibu to locate any any bed store where they could buy really beautiful sheets. And um, no, we didn't have Waterford. We did it. We did, but we all of that amazing crystal was either stuff that um, that I, I found in. Um, secondhand stores or stuff that I found online and I'm so pleased that you 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 absorbed all of that because it's I, I, I spent about three days just working on that martini sequence and um, I really wanted to get into the into the glass and into the reflections and into the silver and you know it, the whole the whole movie is almost like a commercial but you left no stone unturned <laughs> but every one of these details Louise goes to who Catherine is and why Tyler wants to rip her off. It's because of her wealth, her taste, her elegance. He doesn't want to just rip off things. Once he meets her, he wants some of that elan that she has, some of that polish. And Ed does a really, really good job. You really get the movie. I'm so impressed. (laughs) I love this film. And, you know, I love the irony of, okay, Catherine Black, but her house is all white. That it just plays and things like, little things like that I always find so amusing. And they're the little details that you know the writer and director took time to think about those things to put those in. It also allows when you bring color in, it really lets those the color to pop. And then when you amp up the color to, the, the color and saturate it more, even more so, you know, that I'm so excited montage, the colors in there and what's done with the camera is fabulous. Your camera doesn't stay still in this film, Louise. It has the same energy that the music has, that Catherine has. It doesn't stay still. Was that a conscious decision? Absolutely. I mean, I I think that you're seeing, I I really take a lot of time and pay a a lot of attention to detail. And um, again, you know, we started shooting back in November of 2018, and then the Woolsey fires ripped through Malibu, and we were evacuated and couldn't resume filming for four months. Mm. So during that four months, I got an opportunity to look at the dailies from from the original seven days and really spend much more time working on all the tiny, minuscule little details. And um, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that, you, that you and hopefully other audience members are, 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 catching, are catching all those little details that, that meant so much to me. Oh, because it just fuels the story. Every element that you bring in, it would be like leaving out a piece of evidence in a trial uh, to not have these things in. You don't get the complete picture. You don't get the totality of, of Catherine Black's circumstances um, if any of these details are left out. How challenging was the editing process, Louise? Because this thing is rapier. It moves. And you jump. And you keep us on that frenetic en- energy. And it's because of Samuel's editing. So I'm curious how challenging that process was for you as a first-time director. Well, I'm not the kind of director to let any editor take a first shot at editing the film. Again, I like to make sure that I see every single daily and I sit with the editor. There was another editor originally on, um, and he he did a, he cut a couple scenes together, and they were so wrong and went in such a wrong direction. Um, so uh, Sam was um, fair 
fairly inexperienced at the beginning of this journey. It was the first feature he ever cut, uh, and he had put together a couple scenes for me, and it was definitely much more the vibe I was looking for. So I spoke to his boss, and I said, listen, I, I want Sam to edit this film with me. And he's and he, so, you know, at that time, he was just an assistant editor, but Sam and I went on a 12-month journey together um, at Sugar Studios in Koreatown here in Los Angeles. And we we spent, you know, 10 hours a day in this dark editing bay in Koreatown trying to craft the narrative and, and make sure that every scene moved as fast as it could. The thing with editing is that, you know, you have to shoot your darlings, so they say. And so there was a, a lot of scenes that had to get cut just for the sake of moving m moving the, the movie forward and moving the story forward as fast as possible. Um, but then we were able to put those in deleted scenes and we were able to use them as some marketing tools and social media. So um, it wasn't a complete wash in terms of the scenes that we deleted, but it was very challenging cutting anything because I spent so much time working on the dialogue and cutting even one line mm. made a scene to me feel incomplete. I actually, I showed the movie to my father back in Scotland, um, who, who's quite elderly. He watched it and he said, you know what? I like the movie, but the middle, you need to cut some out of that stunt sequence. <laughs> so Ed and I had spent 10 hours shooting this stunt sequence and there with my, with my father, I decided, okay, I've got to cut a whole two minutes of this stunt, stunt sequence. And um, so that was one of the most challenging edits uh, and was very difficult. And also as a director, you learn, um, you better never miss any coverage because if you miss, you know, coverage and you don't have anything to cut to, you're dead in the edit, you're dead in the edit base. So we had to, to um, grab a couple of extra scenes and recreate a couple of um, things to cut to. But I've learned that lesson as a first time director and I won't make those mistakes again. I'm gonna make sure my shot lists are, are much more complete and have plenty of cutaways uh, so that I could be saved in the edit process. Yeah, we missed a couple. I mean, the scene, um, the scene where Tyler smashes the gun out of Catherine's hand uh -huh. and it lands in a sink and smashes a martini glass. We actually shot that at my home in Washington DC. <laughs> um, two, two or three months after we after we wrapped the movie, I was like, wait a minute, we forgot to we forgot to get the gun landing in the sink. <laughs> um, so we had to shoot that later. And then there was a scene I think where they're about to drink a martini, and I forgot to shoot uh, Tyler's hand picking up the martini glass. So we had a friend of my assistant come into my home in LA, and we we had to reset all the lighting and get all that um, all the silver tray and all of the all of the bar set back together and shoot it really tight. So yeah, I mean these are things you learn as a first time filmmaker, but you realize how how costly they are uh, if you don't get them when you're in principal production. I'm curious, Louise, how beneficial is it for you as an actor to be a director does acting help you as a director i think they both help each other um i think they both inform each other i, I will say doing both at the same time is quite challenging especially in all those costumes because i'd arrive on set you know on my 11th costume change of the day and i would you know fr frame up and look at the lighting and then i'd be running around with um the quasars which are those little i call them my magic sticks those brightly colored um, lights that are sort of like like a, like long sort of sticks. Mm -hmm. and I'd be running around, moving them left, moving them right, um, and so 
it was it was definitely challenging doing both at the same time but generally on the whole i'd say that being a director has helped me a lot as an actor and being an actor has helped me a lot as a director um wearing that many hats was challenging at times but so informative what would you say you said you have a list of things you learned this is your first feature film what would you say are the the biggest lessons that you learned, the most important ones as a writer-director making Me You Madness? Um, I would say shot list, shot list, shot list. <laughs> you never shot list enough. Um, I would say that you really have to spend time way in advance with your with your crew, with your cinematographer, talking through every color that you want to see on the screen, every shot that you want to see on the screen. Spend time with your production designer. Don't assume that they know what you want. You have to sit down and go through every single item together. Um, and, you know, also make sure you have enough insurance. Uh, we, we learned a very difficult thing, which is force majeure. You never really think it's going to happen. You don't think there's going to be a zombie outbreak or an apocalypse or as we had fires in Malibu. Uh, but we, we, we should have bought more insurance than we did. That ends up costing us a lot when we got evacuated um, because of the fires. And we had to leave all of our equipment at the location. We didn't know if all of the equipment had burned down. And we had to um, continue to rent that equipment uh, for the for the six weeks um, in between, you know, the time that we were evacuated and the time we were able and allowed by the fire department to go back to the location. So, you know, get plenty of insurance, shot list, shot list, shot list, and always assume that, you know, you're going to need contingencies and extra money because so much extra stuff comes up in post-production. Deliverables are the hardest portion, I would say, of filmmaking. I've never made an independent film before that has been distributed by a major your studio this was my first experience of that and mm -hmm. you know make sure that that when you are starting pre-production and production that you have all of your documents logged cataloged on your dropbox everywhere so that delivery is much easier otherwise you're going to have three three months of really complex paperwork um to deliver at the end um so yeah, so, so all this plan for contingencies and, and you're not allowed to use drones anywhere <laughs> without permits. That, that, was, that was a costly lesson I learned as well. <laughs> that one's a forgivable one because everybody's been so up, up in the air on laws about using drones and permitting and one city says yes, another says no. So that one's forgivable. That's that's a forgivable one. It it, it, it is unless it, it is unless you get caught without your permit, <laughs> in which case they can they can cause a lot of difficulties. But actually, it was fun. Um, one of my favorite days on this movie was shooting the Aston Martin zooming down um, the Pacific Coast Highway. Uh, we had five CHP cars with us, and they actually shut down Pacific Coast Highway for that shot. And you'll notice if you watch the movie again. Um, but in that shot, there are no other vehicles on the PCH, and mm -hmm. that's because you cannot have the public driving um, underneath a live drone because obviously it could cause a major accident. And it was really fun zooming and uh, breaking the speed limit with the police <laughs> with permission, <laughs> um, and and with and with the with the officers. It was it was just such a treat to work that day. It was fantastic. Oh, and that, those are great shots, too, I have to tell you. And as, as I'm watching, and there are no other cars, and it's like, damn, she shut the whole thing down. Yes. 
the whole PCH town. Actually, there's an earlier scene where um, my, uh, my 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 B team went out and um, caught the, the Mustang going down PCH. I wasn't there that day because I was in the in the house shooting uh, with the A team, and um, they flew over the beach. So um, they got away with having other vehicles, <laughs> other vehicles, whether or not I should have had a permit for that, I, I don't know. <laughs> Your visuals in this film look incredible, Louise. They really do. And, Thank you, yeah. And again, what Reinhardt and Boa did with camera dutching and the movement, especially in the house, just it, it just it energizes you watching the film. I hope so. I, I want this to be a movie where people, you know, put on their dancing shoes and dance in their living rooms, you know, and um, and have a great time and stay along. You know, the movie was designed to be pure, um, unadulterated entertainment and a guilty pleasure. Uh, so no matter what your political views are, um, I really hope that this is something that everyone can can enjoy and, and laugh at and dance along with. Well, this is already one of my favorite films of the year. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. I mean, it is just, it, and it's the intelligence of this film. It's that dialogue. It's that humor. It's the way you play. You meld. You pay homage to classic Hollywood, to the femme fatales, to the film noir. You pay homage to the 80s. You're, you are putting in elements for each generation to latch on to. So somebody might exactly exactly somebody might not n understand femme fatales might not know Roz Russell Barbara Stanwyck or Jean Tierney anything like that, but they may recognize the Pointer Sisters, or they're gonna exactly dial in with the James Bond Aston Martin car. Um, there is you have hit something for every generation in this film, Louise, and that is the mark of meticulous attention and somebody that really cares about their product. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really just hope that everybody watches it. It's available everywhere on demand, iTunes um, and Amazon and Roku and Voodoo and on on demand, Xfinity, everywhere. And if you if you like it and you watch it, please go to Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> and, and give us a, a, a good score. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one question, one last question before I let you go, Louise. This is so fun talking to you about this film. I'm really curious, what is the gift that filmmaking gives you, the acting, directing, producing, what is the gift that it gives you? Yeah, it's like being a child in a, in a playroom with, uh, you know, with toys, you know, it, it, it's the idea of holding on to your creativity and your childlike spirit and being able to dream and fantasize and 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 create art you know art is always going to be subjective but to me writing makes me giggle i love comedy um and i love movies and i wanted this to be an homage to cinema and and to all the films that inspired me throughout my life and you know gosh you know as a little kid in scotland i dreamed about working in the movies and i would dance in front of the tv to footloose and flash dance and it was a dream i was just magnetized by this business and 
you know, during filming, even when we had freezing cold moments on set and we were shivering so much that our teeth were chattering and we were trying to subdue the shivering so that we could get our lines up, or even when, you know, things went wrong on set or days were super stressful, I would just smile at my crew and my co-stars and I would say, you know what, we're making a movie. This is, this is magic. We're the luckiest people on earth to be able to be making a movie, so let's not complain. Let's keep a good attitude. Oh, well, it certainly pays off. The proof is in the pudding. I am just so in love with this film, Louise, and I can't wait to see your next one. This has been so much fun, Louise. I can't thank you enough, and I can't so wait much, to Debbie. talk thank to you, you again. Thank you so much, Debbie. I, it's been so nice talking to you. Oh, you have made my entire week, Louise. Yeah, honestly, you've made my you entire made week. Mine. <laughs> oh. Okay. Talk to you soon. Talk to you again sometime soon. And that was Louise Linton. Louise Linton talking about her first directorial writer, director, and star, Me, You, Madness. So that is all the time we have for today. I do have one quick side note for all of our Yellowstone fans out there. Just so you know, today, March 1st, it is the anniversary of the founding of Yellowstone Park, March 1st, 1872. So as you go binge watch more and rewatch and rewatch and rewatch uh, more of our beloved series Yellowstone, um, you can think about that when they talk about the history of Yellowstone. Uh, so that is all the time we have today. Uh, we'll be back next week. I just got a confirmation earlier today before we went on the air. End of the month. We've got a director calling in from Ireland live. So can't wait for that. But we've got somebody else for you next week. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.